Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Well, it's good to see you this morning. I one of the few weeks where I'm going to begin on time. If you have a prayer card, let's go ahead and pray for God's grace before we study Scripture. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for being here. We are going to begin John chapter 19 today. So we only have uh, three chapters left in this great gospel, but it will take a lot more than three sessions to conclude them, so don't get in a hurry. Lots to go through here. Although it'll look like we're actually going through a lot of verses today. Uh, there, there's, we're going to talk, we're going to look deeper inside where we left off last week. Jesus had been brought to Pilate, and of course the final words of chapter 18 uh, were uh, the crowd crying, not this man, but Barabbas, when Pilate had offered to release one prisoner during the festival. And we talked a little about that at the close of our class last week. But I want to, this week, look at about the first 16 verses of chapter 19. And it may take more than just one uh, week to get through them all. We'll just see how we do. We might or might not. But... This is one section, if you will, if I can call it that. So we want to read those at least to have that much of the story in our mind before we stop and talk about it. So if you want to look with me at the scripture in your version, I'll read from mine, chapter 19, for the first 16 verses. Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no crime in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no crime in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard these words, he was the more afraid. Pilate entered the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? 
But Jesus gave no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Upon this Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king sets himself against Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, and in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. Let's stop there. That takes us through the whole of Pilate's trial that we began last week. We began last week looking into the brief discussion that Jesus and Pilate had where, uh, if you remember, that ended with Pilate asking him, what is truth? And there was kind of a pensive, reflectful thought there. Here stood before Pilate truth in reality. Jesus is the truth of God. He is the word of God. He is the way of God. He is the life of God. He is God. And Pilate is questioning what is truth. So in the process, Pilate, as we spoke last week, he doesn't really feel Jesus has done anything, of course, to warrant a death penalty. And so he keeps trying to release him. And as he takes Jesus out uh, to ask them, and they say, no, 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 give us Barabbas, Pilate decides to have Jesus scourged. Now, why do you think Pilate chose to have Jesus scourged? They're asking for the death penalty. Why do you think Pilate chose to have Jesus scourged? Anybody have any thoughts on that? You want to offer? Because that's, he thought if they did something like that, that would appease the crowd and you wouldn't have to kill him. Yeah, I think you're right on that. I think Pilate is trying to appease the Jews. He knows Jesus is not worthy of some kind of death penalty. Uh, but but he is trying to always avoid a mob, always avoid uh, an insurrection, and I think he's trying to appease them. Uh, and Roman scourging is a horrible crime. The fact that one should be scourged and crucified, unbelievable. So scourging, do we really know what scourging is by the Romans? They take the human body and they tie it to a stone pillar with the back exposed and they begin to whip it and beat it. Okay, so that's what they did to Jesus. They whipped him and beat him with what was called uh, what was the name of that thing now? It's just, it was on the tip of my tongue and, and, and uh, it's lost me. Somebody help me? Well, that's the common name. There's a technical name. I knew it and I can't think of it. Cat of nine tails. <laughs> uh, poor cats get labeled there, don't they? Um but it, it is a whip, and at the end of the whip, there are strands of leather, 
and at the end of the strand are tied uh, maybe either uh, pieces of jagged rock or bone or, or uh, metal, anything that's hard and jagged. And with that, the prisoner is beat and whipped mercilessly. Now, the Romans did not have a limit to their scourging. You've heard of, you know, the 40 lashes minus one or something. The Jews scourged people, but the Romans had no limit. This wasn't just 40 lashes for Jesus. Uh, we don't know how many they gave him. But, yes, jump in, Ken. Well, just one, one basically, almost to the death yes. of his whipping. Yes, great point, Kent. Oftentimes, oftentimes, the prisoner died in Roman scourging. Is that bad? Oftentimes he died. Because what happens, that when they're whipped over and over, the, the skin, the meat, the flesh is literally ripped from the back. And that exposes the nerve endings, sometimes, and, and the raw muscle, even sometimes maybe an organ like a kidney or something. I mean, can you even imagine the excruciating pain? I think that, it, it, I'm assuming maybe everyone here has watched the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ. Yeah. And it's pretty graphic, but I, I want to tell you, I think that even isn't graphic enough of what happened to Jesus. I'm not sure that it could even be depicted how graphic and bad it was. Is it true that they pulled every hair on his body out one by one? That's what I heard one time. Yeah, I, I've story. never heard that. I don't think there's any way to s- to justify that. I've never heard that. That's an interesting one. Yeah, I, I don't think we can... I've not heard or read any historical records that say that. But what we have here is a horrible, horrible beating. And on top of that, they decide to mock him. They, they do two things that mock him. Because he has been, quote, called by them, uh, the, the king of the Jews. What are the two things they do to mock him? Crown. They put a crown on his head, and that crown we know is made of thorns. I have a crown of those thorns. I can't remember the name of the bush. It it's actually comes from a bush. It's, a, it's the, the bark or the stems or whatever of a bush. And I have one of those in my office that's fixed to a cross with some, some nails uh, was a gift of mine. I used it a couple of years ago in the Ash Wednesday service, if you were there, and I laid it out on the altar, and I let you all come by and touch it. And every time I move that cross, I walk away with this prick of a finger or something because it is really sharp. It's, you know, it's woven. I don't know how the people even wove it together, but it, it hurts. I mean, just my little prick of my finger hurts, and then it hurts for days because it feels... And you, Oh, I hope I don't. Once I got it underneath a nail, you know how you, you, you stick something under your splinter under your nail, and I'm I'm thinking, what a wimp I am that I can't stand one little prick of a crown of thorns. And they took that and shoved it on Jesus' head of his already beaten body. Can't imagine. And then of course they put a purple robe on him. It says here. Now, the the word for purple here in the original language could denote maybe they didn't have the system of of colorations we do in English. It could have been kind of a magenta. It could have been more of a rosy color, but there's a range of purple hues that represented royalty, okay? Purple was the color of kings, represented royalty. So they put this on him, and then it says that they drag him out 
uh, in front of the people. After they, I mean, they've mocked him. They've said, hail the king of the Jews. It says they struck him on the face with their hands or on the body. And so Pilate takes him back out. And he says, I bring him out to you so that you can know that I find no fault in this man. I don't see a crime for which he should die. And of course, they cry out all the more. Uh, and, and when Pilate comes out to show them that he has no fault, Pilate says these words. I wrote them on the board. In Latin, ete homo. In Greek, Orajo o anthropos. In English, what does it mean? Say it for me. Say it out loud. You know it, right? It's right there in your Bible. What does he say? Behold the man. That's what it says. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, and I know several of you have, one of the things that you see on your tours is this famous uh, thing called the Ece Homo Arch. And it's kind of right near the area where the the way of suffering, the Via Dolorosa begins. And it is thought that this is the place where Jesus was presented, where Pilate took him out. That whole area, of course, looks totally different than it did in the first century because of conquests and ruins and, and, and different things. But they've uncovered areas. They know they're in the area of what was called the Praetorium, or the and in uh, which was in the and fortress of Antonio. This was a Roman fortress built very near the temple to help kind of keep the peace and watch over it in that area. And so this is where, uh, when you're on a tour in Israel, they show you this is, this is where Jesus would have stood, we think. We can't be absolutely certain. One thing that most archaeologists and scholars have proved, is the actual arch wasn't there when Jesus stood there because that arch was later discovered to be built by Hadrian, the emperor, 135 years later, or at least 100 years later. So it's not that the archway is significant, but it's the place where you're at. There's a church built there, a couple of churches built there, One's called the Church of the Flagellation, where you actually go down to what would have been kind of street level in the first century. And there are literal pavements. They're called the the Lystrotos. And that means the, the striped pavement, okay? And there are literally jags into the stone where these scourgings would have taken place that... The Romans did it so often, it literally, when they would drag the body, and then sometimes it would come back and drag the stones. It's, 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 a, it's an unbelievable feeling. For those of you who have been there, you know what I mean, to, to stand in that place and think about our Savior standing there, being beaten, and then later mocked, and then later dragged in front of the crowd and, and hailed as their king by these Roman soldiers, only to, to, and Pilate says, behold the man. And while we can't know exactly what he meant by that, notice he didn't say, behold your king. Not yet, anyway. Okay. It's behold the man. What, what is he trying to say here? He's, behold this beaten man. Behold this punished man. Behold this pathetic 
individual standing here almost dead probably, just can barely stand up, bleeding all over. Behold this. In other words, isn't this enough for you? I don't find any fault in this guy. Shall we just let him go? Is this enough? I think that's what Pilate's hoping for. And they don't, they don't buy it, do they? Verse 6 says they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. I think it's important to note here, um, this is an interesting depiction. You know, for, for years we did a passion play here in the church called Living Pictures of Easter, and we would enact these scenes, and I played a part in some of those, and, and it was, I, I always loved how we did it dramatically. But one of the things I think I've learned over the years in trying to study this is, is something we should note here. Because preachers, and I've probably been guilty of this too, so forgive me, God, uh, if I have done this, I'm sure I have. You know, preachers love to make a point of the fact that six days earlier, Jesus was walking into the, or riding into the city on a donkey, and everybody was hailing him as king. And six days later, they're saying, crucify him. I don't know that we can really pin that on the common people of Jerusalem. Let's think it through for a minute. Okay, let's just be thoughtful. This trial of Jesus didn't happen in public. This happened in private. They made sure that they didn't put it on the docket and hold it at the normal Sanhedrin meetings. It happened through the night. And this is early in the morning with Jesus, and it's been dragging on through the morning till we know that John's going to tell us it was about the sixth hour when they crucify him, which takes him to the... We're going to see that in a few minutes. So all morning this has been going on. But this was not necessarily something that everybody went out and called the whole public to. But we know that the leaders and the chief priests drummed up a crowd. As hour by hour went by, we know that they had to get witnesses. Things weren't going their way at first. Pilate's not wanting to crucify him. Remember, they didn't even have a firm charge. They, when Pilate said, well, what's he done? Well, they said, well, hey, if he weren't a bad man, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Remember that from last week's lesson. And, and, and so the fact that all the city of Jerusalem's not there like they were on the day they hailed him, I, I don't know that we can lay it on all the common people that they just fickle, were so fickle they turned on Jesus. But there were definitely a lot of friends of the leaders of Israel who were that fickle. And they gathered them together and made sure they had enough of a mob. So just want to point that out. It's not necessarily when you hear a preacher saying, and the same people just were so fickle. I don't, you know, that's pretty far stretched maybe psychologically that they can even be that fickle. Uh, Jesus had done nothing all week to turn the people against him. In fact, he's been the people's hero all week. Yes. Okay. I was just wondering, wouldn't it be more like they drummed up people that believed in them rather than uh, common people? Right. I think that's what happened. I think they said, we are going to rally all of the supporters we know of the Pharisees and we know of the Sanhedrin. And uh, Jesus has been a hero all week. I mean, he tipped over the... Money changers tables, I mean, they've been frauded by those money changers for years. You know, he's he's really been, he's done nothing that would publicly make him be sought out as public enemy number one amongst the minds of the people. So this crowd is probably made up of friends of the Sanhedrin. I mean, and the the Sanhedrin itself, when it's fully assembled, is about 70 people, okay? That's a pretty big crowd right there. And... 
then you take all the Pharisees that were perhaps against him, and then you take all of the uh, the friends of theirs and, and leaders. You've got a, probably a pretty good-sized crowd of people that are saying, away with him, crucify him, and acting in a very kind of a mob mentality. And so Pilate's answer is, you take him, you crucify him. And they say, we can't. We can't do that. We, we have a law Last time we know that we t- they told Pilate the last time when we studied last week, we can't do that. Our, we, our law doesn't allow us to put people to death, but yet they've done it several times. So they're being hypocritical there. But here they say, we have a law that says, Pilate says again, take him, I find no fault in him. And Jews answered him in verse 7 and said, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die. What law are they talking about? He says, we have a law, and that law, by that law he ought to die because he's made himself to be the Son of God. They're talking about, in the Mosaic Law, if we could go back into Leviticus, they're bringing up laws of blasphemy. Okay, They're saying that Jesus is a blasphemer because he makes himself out to be of God. Now, they didn't understand Trinitarian terms that he is God, but Jesus has always claimed to be the Son of God or made himself out to be the Son of Man and used those terms. And he said, I and the Father are one. There's been many things that he has said that have led them to realize they think this guy's a blasphemer. And the penalty for blasphemy was death. That's right. Ever since it was first developed as a law back in the Old Testament days of the Mosaic Law. So that's what they're referring to here. Now, when Pilate heard these words, this is fascinating. When Pilate heard these words, it says to us that he was even more afraid. Now, think about that phrase more afraid. That tells us he was a little afraid. I mean, he's been standing before Jesus trying to question him, and Jesus has this calm and this composure, and that's pretty... At this point, Pilate's already thinking, they're claiming he says he's God. Wow. So who is Pilate? Pilate's a pagan, right? Pagans think there's lots of gods. Roman pagans thought there were lots of gods. Greek mythology, Roman mythology, it was all filled with lots of gods. And even in their mythology, they believed that gods sometimes came to earth in the form of humans. They also believed that sometimes these gods uh, mated with humans and had offspring that were part god, part human. So who knows what Pilate's thinking here, but he's thinking this guy might have some divinity in him. What have I got myself into here? He's not afraid of him because he's afraid of the Jewish God, Yahweh. He's not afraid of that. He doesn't understand that God. He doesn't believe in that God. But he's definitely afraid of something. So let's carry the story just a little further here. Uh, So Pilate goes back into the praetorium, verse 9 tells us, back into the hall where he's questioning Jesus and where he's been He was taken down and beaten, but now he's brought back to that hall. They go back in, and Pilate asks him the pointed question, Where are you from? Where are you from? That's a loaded question, isn't it? Jesus could say, well, I'm really from Bethlehem, but everybody thinks I'm from Nazareth, or I'm from Galilee, or he could say a lot of things here. You know, where are you from? But coupled with the thought of the fear that's in Pilate, probably Pilate is asking, if we could phrase it, if we could be so bold as to maybe put words into Pilate's mouth here, interpreting what he's trying to say, maybe he's saying, 
Are you from God? Are you a God? Are you from this world or are you from somewhere else? I think that's what I hear in Pilate's words here. And Jesus does what? What does it say Jesus' answer is? It doesn't answer him. He stands before him silent. Why didn't Jesus answer Pilate? Why didn't he just say, isn't it obvious I'm God? Isn't it obvious I'm the son of God? Why doesn't he say that? Why does he not say anything? Because then he might not crucify him, and that's what God wants him to do. Okay, so there's this thought that Jesus knows he's bound for the cross. No sense defending himself. Any other thoughts? Any other reasons? There is perhaps this thought as well, that Jesus knows that Pilate doesn't believe in him. Why does he need to defend his divinity to a person that doesn't really believe in him. Though there is a spark of fear in Pilate, it's not a fear of faith and awe before God. So it doesn't make sense that Jesus should have to defend himself to anyone at this point. He knows where he's bound. He's bound for the cross. And so he doesn't say anything, and Pilate responds incredibly indignant. Pilate says... You won't speak to me? That's the emphasis we need to put on it. Who do you think you are? You won't speak to me? <laughs> I Don't you know that I have all authority here? Don't you know that I have the authority to condemn you? I have the authority to crucify you? That's the kind of voice I'm pretty sure Pilate used. Because he sees his position. I mean, he's the Roman procurator. He's, he's in charge. There's nobody higher than him outside of Caesar in the land of Israel at this time in the first century. All authority. Whatever he says goes. And, and, he, and he, so he doubly says to Jesus, do you not know that I have power either to release you or to let you go? He's saying, your destiny is in my hands. Do you not realize that? Now what does Jesus say? Does he not answer him again? No, he answers him this time, doesn't he? He answers him. And what's his answer? You don't have any authority. You don't have any authority that hasn't been given to you. He doesn't say, by my father. He says, in the way John records it, from above, meaning from God. And he just point blank tells him, you don't have the authority you think you do. In fact, he says, you'd have no power over me. He's not saying you don't have any power, as I was just kind of flippantly saying. He's not saying you don't have any power. He's saying you would have no power unless it were given to you from above. I think there's an important distinction to be made. Jesus is acknowledging that Pilate does have the power to put him on the cross. But what he's making a point of is who gave him that power. This is part of my father's plan. Jesus knows this is part of my father's plan. You've, given, you've been given this power from above. It's an interesting conversation. You know, it's one that, that we, we do well to think through the tone and the way that it's said. And therefore, Jesus says, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Who's Jesus talking about? He's not saying to Pilate that you're exempt here, that you don't have any guilt in this. But there are some people who have greater guilt, and it's the ones 
who delivered me to you. Why do they have a greater guilt than Pilate who ultimately sentences Jesus to death? Why is their guilt greater than Pilate's? Why do you think? Guilt is always attached to culpability. Okay? They should have known better. The fact that Pilate couldn't see Jesus as God isn't surprising. He's a Roman. He hasn't followed Jesus around for three years. He's heard stories, I'm sure. But these leaders of Israel, they know the prophecy. They know the scriptures. They know God, supposedly. And they should have known better. They have the greater guilt. Make no mistake about it. Jesus said, they're guilty of my blood. Consciousness of guilt in the law, yes. Culpability, you have to, when you know you've done wrong, I mean, in fact, there's a sense in which uh, I think that's why that would make a little theological point here about sin, okay? There's, there's really always been and always will be sin on two levels. Sin that is, sin as defined is less than God's will, okay, violating God's will, okay, which we as humans can't help to do without the Spirit of God enabling us. Uh, But yet sin, as defined in the New Testament, becomes this violation of God's loving will or God's love, not his written word. So there is sin on an unconscious level, and there is sin on a conscious level. You follow me? I know I'm getting a little deep theological here. There is sin on an unconscious level, we would call that a sin of, uh, 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 there's a technical word and it just left me too. See what happens when I, omission, thank you. I, I don't have it or something you don't have been. But when we know that something is wrong and we do it anyway, now we're conscious. Now we're committing voluntary, willful transgressions. This is why theologically the 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 theology of John Wesley, of which the Church of the Nazarene and other Wesleyan Arminian theologically minded people subscribe to, is that in the New Testament, the law that we violate isn't the Mosaic law. It isn't the law, but it's the law of love, the greatest law ever, the law to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love everyone else the same. So when we violate the law of love, now we're truly willfully conscious of our sins and we're condemned before God. So throw that out there. Those people, the, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the rulers, the judges of Israel, they knew better. They're consciously sinning here. Okay? Yes, Kent. Did they just want the, uh, the Romans to take responsibility absolutely they want the Romans to take responsibility they want Jesus condemned by Rome so that they can always say I know he was popular to the crowds because remember Jesus is popular to the crowds if the whole world had turned against Jesus if the whole city of Jerusalem had already turned against Jesus if the whole city of Jerusalem's yelling crucify him well then they probably could have just taken him out and stoned him if they wanted to okay because they're not worried. But they're a little bit worried about repercussions. These are very political animals. They don't want an insurrection either. 
And they want to know that their hands are uh, dissolved of of any guilt. We're going to let them kill him. And then we can say to the crowds, you see, if he was really from God, he wouldn't have died. Okay. So that's what's going on here. Now, upon hearing this, verse 12, verse 12 through 16, our balance of our time today together. Upon hearing this, Pilate sought to release Jesus. He's already sought to release Jesus. But now hearing this, now admitting his fears, he is seeking to release Jesus even more. And so he goes out (laughs) one more time. It doesn't say here, we're not following it chronologically, he goes out, but we know he does because he says, tries to release them. That's the same as saying he goes out to the crowd one more time. And the crowd says, in verse 12, something really important for us to get. They say, if you release Jesus, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. What are they doing? They are trying to create fear, to scare him, and to manipulate him. Because Caesar... Emperor Tiberius is the Roman Emperor Tiberius. He is the ultimate authority. And, of course, in their culture, thought to be God. They had Caesar-type feel, you know, grandeurs of divinity of their Caesars. And he doesn't want to alienate Caesar because he's already had, remember, we know from history, there have been many insurrections in Israel. His job is to make sure there aren't any more. And if he offends Caesar, if they're, they're basically blackmailing him. If you don't do this, we're going to tell on you. <laughs> we're going to send word to Rome that you are letting people pretend they're kings in place of Caesar. How's that going to play out? Not good for Pilate. <clears throat> so Pilate literally is in a place between choosing for his own life, because he knows the end of that story, if Tiberius doesn't gets wind of this, or he's got to choose Jesus' life. He thinks in his mind he has the power to do, e- to do either. He has the power, he thinks, to release Jesus. And he's got to choose between his life or Jesus. Well, that's a no-brainer. Pilate's not going to choose Jesus just because we know Jesus is innocent. Because he doesn't, even though he believes he's innocent, he's not going to choose him. He's not going to die on that hill, so to speak. Okay, we, we think in terms of justice, and we know that a judge would say, well, the evidence is clear. The man's not guilty. Let him go. Doesn't matter how bad the crowds are. But no, that's not the world they lived in. Pilate knows his life is on the line here now. Because these people do it. They'll, they'll tell Rome. And so he has no choice. He feels he has no choice. And in reality, he didn't. It says, when Pilate heard these words, verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down, sat down on the judgment seat. Now, there is a place, this is a very high kind of mounded place that was called the judgment seat. And this is where the Roman procurator would have sat to pronounce, kind of like, kind of like the bench in a courtroom where the judge sits and officially issues his proclamations. This is where it makes, John's very clear to give us these details, he goes out and sits on the judgment seat. And he says, from there, as we follow it here, he brought Jesus out, set him down on the judgment seat, 
And now it was the day of preparation. So John's giving us a lot of details. It's the day of preparation. And it's about the sixth hour, which is around noon. Okay? So why is John giving us all these details? He's setting up something here. And then he gives us the words of Pilate. Pilate says, he doesn't say, behold the man this time. He says, behold your king. Behold your king. Well, that's, that's like, it's kind of like a slap in the face to them, right? They're like, no, this guy's not our king. He's, he's, Behold your king. Okay. I don't know what to read into all of those words of Pilate. There's no way we humans 2,000 years later can read into what he meant by that. But at some level, I'm pretty sure that Pilate knows I'm not dealing with an ordinary human being here. I don't know what to do with it. I'm afraid to deal with it, but I know I'm not dealing with it. Remember what Matthew tells us? We're not studying the Gospel of Matthew, but I brought it up last week. Matthew's wife said, I mean, Matthew tells the story of Pilate's wife, where Pilate's wife had warned him, don't have anything to do with this man. I had a dream about him. Okay? He's got a, and he's got fear. I mean, there's something going on here. So he says, behold your king. And they cry out, away with him, away with him, let him be crucified. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And now the chief priest answers. It's interesting. John's giving us incredible detail here. While he's got the crowd drummed up, the chief priest answers. Why is it important that the chief priest make this proclamation? What does the chief priest say? We have no king but Caesar. Why is it important that John notes that the chief priest said this? We don't get these details from other gospel writers. Why? Because the chief priest speaks for the people of Israel. He is the highest of their... They have no king, okay, since the days of the captivity. He answers for, he answers for the people. And if he says our religion, our Jewish nation has no king but Caesar, that's it. That's final. We recognize Caesar. They're loyal subjects. So that's got, that guy's not our king. Take him away. But let's think about some of the details that, that John has given us here. It's the day of preparation. What does that mean? He's reminding us it's the day of preparation. What does John mean by that? Preparation for what? Passover. Passover, yes. The Passover, the preparation day, what, what was the... So at sundown, remember the Jewish day always begins at sundown. In the in ancient world, days began at sundown. Went from sundown to sunup. Okay? Or sundown to sundown, I'm sorry. Sundown to sundown. So now, the sixth hour is counting since sunup. Okay? So when the day began and working in working day. And, and John says it's now about the sixth hour, so that helps us pinpoint the time. Which I'll just throw in a little note here, actually. Mark, the evangelist, Mark, the gospel writer, actually says it's about the third hour. Did you notice that? Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes there's little discrepancies like that. And I just want to throw that out again. Remember, it is not our theology. It is not our theology that the Bible is perfect in every chronological detail. Okay, that would be a fundamentalist perspective that we, that number one is illogical because it isn't. There are discrepancies. But those discrepancies are no different than you and I trying to describe a real event, but we just hear it and feel it and see it differently. 
but it does God is giving us the advantage of four gospel views. Okay, and each one tells the story for a different reason to a different mode of people, but it doesn't mean we have to nitpick the Bible or nitpick the gospel down to every last little detail about the time of day. I think John Mark got it wrong. He's the only one of the three, of the four, that, that, that says it's about the third hour. Okay. But again, they're not wearing wristwatches, and they don't have cell phones, and there's no clock on the wall. Okay. And it's pretty hard to remember what time is. And plus, Mark wasn't there, probably. Mark is not one of the 12. Okay. He was later a companion of Peter and Paul. So we have no knowledge that Mark was there anyway. I can't say for sure that he was there in the crowd. So, uh, just a little side point, if anybody ever says, well, one of the problems with the gospel is because Mark says it's this, and John says it's this, and don't, don't buy into those little arguments, okay? We're not, we're not uh, illogical fundamentalists in the way we view scripture. Now, in the preparation day of the Passover, why is this so important, that it's preparation day? What happened on the preparation day? They had a particular work to do, but that work was to prepare the Passover. And they, you're right, they had to have it done now. But what are they doing? So another reason why I think not all the city of Jerusalem standing around not doing anything to watch this trial is because they're busy with preparing their Passover. Every family has to prepare the Passover. And what has to be done? What's the number one thing you have to do to prepare the Passover? You've got to have a lamb and sacrifice that lamb, the Passover lamb, okay? And we know that at the very time that it, it, there's thousands of lambs had to be slaughtered to feed hundreds of thousands of people, okay? And they're in Jerusalem. And those lambs are slaughtered not in your living room or your kitchen. They're slaughtered where? At the temple right next door. While all this is going on, lambs are being slaughtered getting ready for the Passover. But we see... Now think back with me. Remember the beginning of the gospel when we started studying this two, almost two years ago. Jesus comes walking over the hillside and John the Baptist points and he says what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he comes down to the water and he's baptized. Now, 18 chapters, whatever, later, the, the story's coming full circle. Now he truly is becoming the Lamb of God. Jesus is truly becoming the Lamb of God who is being sacrificed. And it begins with his sentence to death. It's already, he's already been scourged. He's already been, you know beaten and bruised and battened. So we see the very words of the prophet Isaiah come true before our very eyes as we read this. Remember when Jesus stood there and did not defend himself? He didn't answer Pilate. He didn't defend his divinity. What did Isaiah say? Anybody remember the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, what it says? Like a lamb before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is the Lamb of God on the day of preparation, the final Lamb, the one and only Lamb, the Lamb to end all lambs, the Paschal Lamb. As, as the Apostle Paul will later write in his epistles, Christ, our Passover, 
has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. You see, Easter, we call it Easter in the Western world. It really was never called Easter. It was called, in Greek, Pascha. In Hebrew, Pisach. Pisach. Okay, which means Passover. Now, as you go to the Greek churches, the Eastern churches, the Orthodox churches, it's Pascha, not Easter. Easter is a word evolved out of the Western church world, kind of taken over from pagan holidays. Nothing wrong with calling it Easter. It's just not accurate. Okay, I'm not, not saying we can't use the word Easter. But if we want to be more deliberate, what we want to remember is this is Passover. So for Christians, when we celebrate what we think of as Easter, when we celebrate Easter, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating Passover. Absolutely we are. But we're celebrating the final fulfilled Passover. Okay? We're celebrating the, the Paschal Lamb. As Paul says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Let us keep the festival. And we know that they did. We know that the early church began keeping that festival. And the one thing that was the center of their celebration was the lamb. Jesus, the bread and the wine. Okay? You want to hear some fascinating symbolism? If you walked over to a Eastern Orthodox church of any kind and you talked to the pastor there about the communion, the bread and the wine, they have this baked bread, okay, that they're going to, and you know that bread that's baked right there in house. I love this, by the way. I just love this. I wish we could do this. I don't know how you do it with 500, but they do it. It's just a culture change, okay? But I love this. They bake the bread right there in every week. Okay, and, and on this bread, and they used they used leavened bread, not unleavened bread. Like we have these little wafers of unleavened bread. They believe, and there's, there's a there's a lot to go there. I, I'll tell you why I think they use leavened bread because Christ is is uh, also even though in Passover the Jews swept all the leaven out of their home, Christ is also called the leavening. He is what makes it. He is the risen Lamb. What does le- leavening make things do? Rise. I got to be honest with you, I think they're right about that. I think we should use leavened bread in communion. We don't because tradition has taught us in the Western world not to. But we haven't been thinking about this for 2,000 years. <laughs> but, but on that baked bread, they bake right there at the church for that day's celebration. They have a stamp and they put that stamp into the bread and they bake it in. So it's like a seal, okay? And it's made and it it bakes into the bread when they put it in the oven to bake. So that when you take it out and they use kind of like a spring form pan, you know, so it's a round loaf, kind of like a cheesecake looking thing of various sizes, depending on how many people are in the church. And they take the seal out then once it's baked and what's baked into the bread is this inscription. And it's Greek. And it's the letters, it spells out Jesus Christ, the lamb. And they call that bread, that bread, it's not called the bread, it's not called the communion host like the Latin churches do. It's the lamb. This is the lamb. Isn't that cool? I think it's cool. Uh, I think it's full of meaning and rich symbolism, and it it dates back, they say, all the way back. Um, So these are little traditions that were begun. This is how important it was to the early Christians to celebrate Passover. This is the lamb. Okay, the lamb 
to end all lambs. The lamb who was slain once and for all so that sins may be forgiven. And as Jesus says in the narration of Holy Communion, which we are going to do this Sunday, which I'm going to celebrate with you this Sunday as uh, it's my turn to preach again. And the subject will be about, I'm going to follow up my sermon from two weeks ago because I didn't do very good at trying to explain myself. I don't think I think I need to re-explain a few things. So I'm going to call it part two, okay? <laughs> part two. And communion is very much a part of why we need, I, I say I didn't do very good I'm, I, because people would, several people called me this week and said, I loved your sermon, but, or the week after that, and said, but, but what was the main point again? <laughs> I thought, okay, I didn't make the main point the main point. That was my problem. I was trying to be clever and leave it towards the end, and then I think I didn't make it the main point. But that's what happens when you don't use notes. But here's my point. So it's going to be part two this week, and I'm going to explain a little better the detail of why we need the church, and the church is the body of Christ, and communion is very, very important. In fact, it is everything. We cannot separate the worship of Almighty God from the thought of the crucified and risen Lamb. Okay, and I'm going to tie that together for you in a sermon on Sunday. But for this morning, I want you to hear that this was for the early Christians, this Passover. This is why John says this is the preparation day. Jesus is being slain as all those other lambs are being slain. They're being slain from a tradition that worked for one year, put off the remission of sins for one year, put, you know, and Jesus is being slain once and for all time, for all sins ever committed, past, present, and future. Okay? The cross of Jesus Christ, which we're going to get to, so I won't get ahead of myself. We're going to get to the narration of the cross. He's not quite there yet in our, in our study. But I wanted you to see that this happens at Passover for a reason. Passover did not go away. Passover was fulfilled. And we, still, we celebrate the fulfilled Passover. Okay, Pascha. We celebrate that when we come to the season of Easter. And many Paschas, or many Passovers, or many Easters, every single Lord's Day in the early Christian church. Now, we do it once a month. Every church in our tradition has different, <coughs> different uh, realities. They, they set, we have that flexibility, I guess you could call it. There are many Christian churches, both Protestant as well as Catholic uh, or Orthodox, that celebrate communion every single week. And the reason they do it is because that was from the earliest of times the very center of Christian worship. To worship God meant to worship the crucified and risen Lamb and to receive Him. Okay? In our tradition over the last couple of hundred years of the evangelical movement, worship services began to be centered around altar calls. Okay? Altar calls. The preached word and the altar call. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love to preach. There's nothing wrong with that. I love to see that happen. But understand there's always been an altar call. Because when the pastor or the priest or whatever you want to call them in the earliest of ancient Christian churches gathered in some living room in some house, stood there and reenacted this beautiful Passover moment and held that bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He's speaking the words of Jesus. 
And he called, he said, blessed are those who are called to his table. And the people got out of their seat and they came to the table to receive that bread and that cup. That was an altar call. They were called to the altar. They're receiving Jesus in a very unique way. The altar call of our tradition is more of an altar call to unbelievers. Stems from the time where John Wesley went out into the streets and into the courtyards and into the, 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 wherever he could to preach the word of God and say, come to the altar, come and be saved. Well, in a very real way, every time we take communion, we're coming to be saved all over again. Because salvation is of God, past, present, and future. Jesus died. Scripture goes on to tell us, the Apostle Paul in his writings, that the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. John tells us that in the book of Revelation. Okay? When the, behold, the Lamb comes walking in, you know, he looks as one of slain, slain before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? How in the world was, if he, if he, if he was slain on that day, in Jerusalem, on a point in time, how could John say he was slain before the foundation of the world? Because everything in God's economy happened before creation. You see, God, before all creation, God looked out over all of what would one day be time. And in his heart, in the heart of God, in the mind of God, whatever analogy you want to use, he chose to create knowing all that would ever happen knowing that he would have to lay down the life of his son and knowing that it would be for every sin that would ever be committed. So it had to be before the foundation of the world or otherwise Jesus would have only died for those that were committed up to that very day that Jesus died and people put their faith. But there's people that haven't even been born. You and I weren't even born yet. When's he, when, you know, his death was once and for all. Outside of time and space, Inside of time and space, yes, he physically hung on the cross. But in a very mystical, real way, he died outside of time and space so that we, no matter when, until he comes again, may enter into that very reality. And this is why the early church said to celebrate the Eucharist. They called it Eucharist because that meant thanksgiving. And this was their, their thanks to God for, for dying for them. To celebrate the Eucharist was to celebrate their salvation in this very present moment. And that the Lamb was present. The Lamb of God was present, even in this very moment, even though he died 2,000 years ago, even though he was raised from the dead 2,000 years, he's still present in this moment. How can that be? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's five minutes left, so I'm going to put that off till our discussion at the cross. You'll want to come back because I'm going to explain to you how Jesus, when he said, this is my body, how that could possibly even be his body. Uh, that's a very deep thought. So, well, I'm going to touch on it, and then I'll explain it more. Because I want you to come to church Sunday and receive communion with different hearts and different minds. Okay, so let me just go ahead and take about three or four minutes to touch on it. When Jesus, on the night he was betrayed as the scripture narrates, when he is in the upper room with the disciples and he takes a piece of bread and he says, this is my body, broken for you, so that sins may be forgiven. Take and eat. And then it says, likewise, after supper, he said, this cup is the cup of my blood. Now, both times it says he gave thanks, okay? This cup is the cup of my blood. It's the blood of a new and everlasting covenant so that sins 
may be forgiven. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And we see Paul quoting those very words later on in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 and 11. In 11, he quotes those very words. And he says, I received these words from Jesus. Jesus taught Paul that even though he met Jesus after his death through his own mystical experience. It was a revelation to him on the Damascus Road and later on. But the point is, is Paul quotes Jesus in chapter 11. He says, these words we received from the Lord himself. That when we celebrate this, we should say, and he quotes those exact words again from the gospel. So this were not just words. They were a present reality. And why do I say that? It's so important that Paul says in that Corinthian letter in chapter 11, he said, this is so important that... Unless a man discern the body rightly, the body, holding a piece of bread. Unless a man discern the lamb, the body, he eats and drinks damnation to himself. If we don't recognize what we're really doing, be careful. We could eat and drink damnation to ourselves. Communion, the Eucharist, Holy Communion, is a real participation in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. If we can't see that, okay, then we're not looking deep enough. We're not looking deep enough. Now, our our theology is not Catholic in the sense that we don't try and explain how it happens. Okay, the medieval church of Rome tried to explain it all. Well, you see, it happens right here when the priest says this words and when this is done and boom, That's not our theology. That was never the theology of the early church. The theology of the early church is this is a mystery. It's a mystery. We can't explain it. We just know that somehow it's real. And we know that from the words of Jesus because Jesus, when he said in the Greek language where the the scripture is written, when he says, do this in remembrance of me, that word remember is the Greek word anamnesis. Anamnesis. And that word literally means to, rem- to recall in our memory something that has happened but is present real to us. That's, that's, that word is full of meaning in, in the Greek language, okay? To remember and to relive, okay? Now, Christ died once and for all. He's not being re-sacrificed. Christian theology has never said that he was re-sacrificed. Christian theology has always said this is a bloodless sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of remembrance, but no less real. And if you want to say, I don't understand, then I would say, amen. I don't either. But I can't understand the Trinity, and I can't understand how God could create the world out of nothing, and I can't understand anything, really, because I'm just the creator. But I can embrace, by faith, that which has always been taught. Until the Reformation, when some Protestant churches broke away and said, nope, we don't believe that, that's hocus pocus, nothing happening here. That's what some Protestants did. And they just rejected it, and some of them don't even ever celebrate communion, don't have any sacraments at all. That's not our theology. Now, does every every pastor in every Nazarene church uh, understand this? No. Do they teach it all that way? No. On the higher levels, if we had six general superintendents sitting down here, I think they would say yes. 
But, but not all of our pastors are trained to understand this because we come from a 100-year-old tradition that trains our pastors to really be evangelical, not liturgical. Okay, we don't train them in liturgics. But over, I know many that understand it and have understood it. And we're only 100 years old and we've got a lot better work we need to do to train ourselves and teach ourselves. But, but, but I want you to hear, I want you to see Communion is very real. It's holy. It's reverent. Because if it's not, then you're just doing something that has no meaning real. And it's not. And, and, and Jesus told you to do it often for apparently no real reason. And if you'll go back and do, but what is the real reason? The real reason is so that we can be saved. Jesus says in John chapter 6, that unless a man eat my flesh and drink my blood, he we, we studied this in John chapter 6. Go back and listen to that podcast. That whole chapter, Jesus said, unless a man eat my bread, I mean eat my flesh and drink my blood, he has no life in him. And he said, my flesh is, read the Greek, real food. My blood is real drink. It's there in the Greek. And it freaked the people out. And it says droves went away. They, they even say right there in John 6, this is weird. Who could understand this? This is hard. Freaked them. And, 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 and most of the people left and did not follow Jesus after that point. His following went way down. And he looks to his disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? The last words of John chapter 6. They look to Jesus and they say, Master, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? They knew he was real enough. They better stick with us. They didn't understand it, but they were going to stick with it. And that's what we're called to do. We'll understand it someday in heaven, but we're called to have faith. So I went two minutes over. We're going to go, you know, this will maybe be a lesson that will make more sense to us when we really talk about the cross. There's lots more to say about the cross, which we get into in, in the next uh, portion of the chapter. So for now, let's leave off with, let's leave off with verse 16. Verse 17 says, so they took him away to be crucified. And we'll begin there next time. Um, questions before we just close? Thoughts, questions? Do you have one? Jump in. Um, I think it was Barker that I read. How many, many, many lambs had to be slain for Passover? Yeah. Lots and lots and lots. And that the blood flowed from the temple down into the Kidron. Kidron Valley, yeah. Mm-hmm. So as Jesus came after his arrest down that pathway across the Kidron, he must have seen the blood. Oh yeah. Flowing, and this is what was just hours before he's at. at exactly. Yeah. On his way to the cross. And what must his thoughts have been, knowing that his blood was about to be yeah. shed, seeing all that blood flowing from the temple. What a powerful image. Is that an image? Yeah. Oh, wow. And Barclay's so good at that. William Barclay, Bible commentator of the last century, is so good at those images. I love it. One of my favorites. Thank you. Any thoughts? Questions? Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for time and your word this morning. God, would you take my feeble attempts to explain your precious faith, and would you cover over those things that I make mistakes on? And would you imprint upon our souls and our minds and our hearts the truth of your word? Help us to see you in your word, 
lives, the risen land. Thank you now for this time together until we meet again. We ask this in the strong name of our risen lamb, Jesus Christ, your son, our savior, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, and to ages of ages. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.